Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Bradley Lectures podcast. I'm your host, Tal Fortgang. Today, we pay tribute to the late Gertrude Himmelfarb, the eminent historian and social critic who died on December 30th at the age of 97. B. Crystal, as she was known to friends and family, helped galvanize an intellectual movement in her reverence for the great subjects of her study and her unflinching insistence on upholding the best of our Western political and cultural traditions. Today, we return to her last Bradley lecture, Some Reflections on Burke's Reflections, to celebrate the life and scholarship of a great mind who, in the course of her lecture, even humbly admits that in her earlier work on Edmund Burke, she had been too dismissive, only to grow to appreciate his love for tradition as she got older. We hope that returning to this lecture will help a new generation similarly appreciate B herself. Now, in addition to being a leading historian and writer, B was also a friend and mentor to many, especially here at the American Enterprise Institute, where she was a member of the Council of Academic Advisors. And I'm grateful today for one of those friends, Carlin Bowman, senior fellow at AEI, who's been the driving force behind this podcast and who joins me today in studio to discuss the life, the philosophy, the works of Gertrude Himmelfarb. Carlin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So tell us about your relationship with B. Crystal. Uh, what did you learn from her? What were some of your notable interactions? What do you associate with, with her? I was very fortunate to come to AI in 1979, 40 years ago this year, and to get to know, as a very junior person, some of the really great minds um, who inhabited AI and were part of the AI community. I think of Jean Kirkpatrick, of Robert Bork, of Robert Nisbet, of Walter Burns, all of whom were just extraordinarily important to the Institute. And B. Crystal, Gertrude Himmelfarb, uh, joined our Council of Academic Advisors in the mid-1980s, and she was one of the longest-serving members of that council. The council looked over the work that AEI was doing, and on a couple of occasions I was fortunate to sit in on those sessions with the, the individual members of that council to talk about AEI's work, and I thought that she always had so many interesting insights about the things that AEI was doing and the work to come. The Council of Academic Advisors selected the both the Francis Boyer Lecture and the Crystal Lecture, two of the, the most important lectures that AEI has had over its history, and B was very much involved in those decisions overall. Um, she also was gave one of the very f- first Bradley Lectures in the series um, when the Bradley Foundation of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, funded um, a series of lectures, and her first lecture was in 1990 titled From Hegel to Marx to Lenin. And what was so interesting about these individuals, and B in particular, was how broadly educated they were. And I don't think you see that as much in younger figures um, at AI or at any other think tanks. They could speak so easily about so many different topics, about philosophy, about sociology, and the like. And they interacted in such a powerful way. B was also just a wonderful friend. You could talk to her about many things. You could talk to her about ordinary things in life. And in many ways, and I think this was one of the themes in the memorial service to her this weekend, um, that came up over and over again, that she was very modern in her view. She was very interested in, in things going on among younger people today. And so in that sense, we bonded over some of those kinds of discussions. And she was also modern and, and 
interesting in another a number of other ways, and again, this came up yesterday, in that she changed her mind about things. She was not committed to one point of view, and we can talk about that a little later in the Burke discussion. Overall, as a matter of fact, one of the delightful little anecdotes yesterday, say, say one of the memorialists said that she had changed her mind about whether she preferred Dickens or Trollope, and she ended up being a Trollope fan, and she'd been a Dickens fan for so many years, and there were some bravos from the audience at that point from all the other Trollope fans sitting there overall, and Trollope is absolutely wonderful author, and so that is certainly something I understand. But she gave three other Bradley lectures other than that first one, more than anyone else in the series, and so she was a very important part with her husband, Irving, of the AI family, and it was just a privilege to be a very junior person in terms of getting to know her and getting to know Irving. They both intimidated me enormously, um, but I found them both so easy to talk to that it was it was just a delightful friendship over many years. If you could encourage young people today to read one work, listen to one lecture, uh, or even just to learn one lesson of B's scholarship or uh, her her personal conduct and the way she treated people, what what would you encourage people to learn? Well, one thing that I think is very interesting about the totality of her work is how many people she influenced. Um, and I think of Robert Doerr, his work on poverty, her work on poverty and compassion, Nick Eberstadt. On the second floor of AI, I have the cover of three books on the subject of how we measure poverty, how we think about poverty, her great book on poverty and compassion, and Nick Eberstadt's work. All of that was informed by B's thinking in that particular area. So she educated a, a generation in many areas. And I think the fact that she was broad-minded, um, that she reconsidered opinions um, and that she had had earlier in her life, and that she was always open to discussion of things modern and things ancient. That breadth of her knowledge is actually, it's really remarkable when you consider that she grew up at, in a, a Jewish family in New York in the 1920s and 30s. Yes. Not exactly a, a hotbed of, of uh, great intellectual opportunity. The, the New York Jewish intellectual scene was, was quite vibrant. Uh, As a woman. For a woman to come out of that. For a woman to come out of that with a triple major um, from Brooklyn College at a time, again, when people were educated in a very different way. And at the same time, she took a very long subway ride, did her homework on the subway up to the Jewish Theological Seminary. to get another uh, to get a another degree i believe in in i think that's right another degree although i'm not, I'm not sure that's correct but again that was something she came back to later in life and so all of this initial preparation was very important for her career towards the end of her lecture on Burke that we're going to hear in just a few minutes she does discuss some particularistic and jewish themes which seemed a bit out of place until she ties it back together and i encourage our listeners to uh, pay attention uh, well until the end of this lecture. How does someone from a, a an immigrant family in in Jewish New York come out with a a masterful work on Lord Acton and move from Acton to poverty to a study of Edmund Burke? How does that happen? And to George Eliot, um, it's just so broad and so deep. And I think that comes from the education that she had from the fact that her parents encouraged her to pursue educational studies in a very broad way. Again, very unusual for a woman in that period and particularly for theological studies. 
at that time overall. And so I think that um, um, going to the University of Chicago, obviously a very important part of her life and, and education. And she began, I think, early on to focus on a few subjects and uh, to go from there, Burke being one of them, but the Lord Acton biography, which she said she was never really happy with. Um, I, and Leval Levin, as suggested, was a tour de force, our colleague Leval Levin. So it, um, um, she had so much to offer in so many ways. But why she decided on Lord Acton, I never asked her that question. How did you see B and her husband, Irving Crystal, a great uh, a great scholar in his own right. How did you see them working off each, o- each other's strengths, complementing each other intellectually? Uh, in what ways did you see that manifest? They had such a wonderful marriage. And as he said, he just, the first time he saw her, he fell in love with her even before he had met her. And that's a wonderful story. And they had a, a great partnership for 67 years. And in her tribute to him in the final, one of the last books that she wrote, she went back to Jewish theological studies thinking in the, the, the areas that had interested her when she was very young to write about her husband. So that was that was quite interesting. So they had just a wonderful partnership and wonderful children, Liz and Bill. Let's talk about this lecture, uh, some reflections on... Burke's Reflections, uh, just a, a, a delightfully whimsical title, and it really it allowed B to sort of present her favorite choice quotes from from Burke's writing. And absolutely, and she did that in the lecture, if I remember correctly. She actually read quite a number of the quotes from Burke, and she talked about reconsiderations in her own thinking about Burke. And so I thought that was again another indication of how she reflected on things she had read or written earlier in her life, and they informed her thinking as it become, became broader and broader over time. The major theme, uh, as I was going over the lecture, the major theme that came up over and over again was a sort of epistemic humility that allows the modern, hyper-rational person to relinquish some of the the modern insistence on reason above all things and return to inherited tradition as its own legitimate source of wisdom. Uh, And that, to me, has become a a resurgent thought in conservative circles today, Uh, and and that it's it's cyclical in a sense, and sometimes conservatives insist on on hyper-rationality, and sometimes our epistemology shifts a little bit to uh, the wisdom of tradition itself. Do you see B. Himmelfarb playing a a central role in shaping the movement as we know it today, uh, based on this this insight? Was that was that everywhere, or or was this really her major contribution? I think she was enormously important in this regard for shaping the way many younger conservative intellectuals are thinking uh, about the movement today. And you mentioned something that I think is very important, her humility, which I think I saw throughout her writing, throughout her career, continuing to learn, continuing to probe the past for what was worthwhile and good and other things that she might have wanted to, to change over time. But yes, I think that she reminded um, many conservatives of first principles. With that, we're going to move to 
Gertrude Himmelfarb's October 2008 lecture, Some Reflections on Burke's Reflections. Normally we cut these podcasts down by a few minutes to help fit time constraints, but in honor of Dr. Himmelfarb's legacy, we are going to play this lecture in its entirety, and we're going to link to her other Bradley lectures below. We hope you listen to this and uh, all the wisdom she had to offer. Carlin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Our lecturer uh, this evening, Gertrude Himmelfarb, to her friends B. Crystal, is an intellectual historian and essayist and a student of morality and its absence in politics, society, and the academy from the late 18th century through her favorite period, the Victorian era, and down to the present. Professor Himmelfarb, she has been a professor for most of her career at the Graduate School of the City University of New York, uh, has been an eminent uh, figure uh, in her fields for over half a century. Her first book was uh, published 60 years ago uh, this year. It was a collection of essays uh, uh, by uh, Lord Acton, uh, published in 1948, uh, and uh, she published a few essays about Acton in the subsequent years, and in 1952, her first book, Lord Acton, A Study of Conscience and Politics, uh, appeared. Uh, she has written uh, 13 or 14 books uh, since then. Uh, her most uh, recent have been The Roads to Modernity, The British, French, and American Enlightenments in 2004, and in 2006, a collection of essays published throughout her career, The Moral Imagination from Edmund Burke to Lionel Trilling. She has just finished another book uh, to be published next summer, The Jewish Odyssey of George Eliot. She is a member of the AEI Council of Academic Advisors uh, and has received uh, many awards, most recently the National Humanities Medal in 2004. Please give a warm welcome to B. Crystal. Thank you very much, Chris. Although I must say I could have done without some of those dates, which, which make me feel even more ancient than I am. I am pleased to be part of this. I, I don't think Chris mentioned this, but this is an this year an all AEI, isn't it? Bradley Lecture Series. And I'm particularly pleased to be part of this series, all the more because I was present at the creation, so to speak, when the first of these lectures was delivered 20 years ago. I've attended a great many since then and even managed to give a few. And it seems to me fitting that now, in the, my last contribution to this series, I should return to one of my earliest subjects, Edmund Burke, who has continued to be a formidable intellectual presence and a challenge to me the, for these very many years. Burke was and still is a provocative thinker, a provocation in his own day as in ours. At a time when most right-minded, which is to say left-inclined English literati, with rhapsodizing over the French Revolution, Wordsworth, remember, declaring it to be bliss in that autumn to be alive, in that dawn to be alive. Burke wrote his Reflections on the Revolution in France, a searing indictment of the revolution. He was accused then, as he is now, of being excessive, even hysterical, in his account of the revolution. 
quote, a ferocious dissoluteness in manners and insolent irreligion in opinions and practices, laws overturned, tribunals subverted, industry without vigor, commerce expiring, a church pillaged, civil and military anarchy, national bankruptcy. All this, one must remember, and it is sometimes hard to remember, was said in November 1790, three years before the reign of terror, which Burke was so presciently describing. While others, others were witnessing what they took to be a natural and much-needed political revolution, that is, the transformation of an absolute monarchy into a limited monarchy, Burke saw nothing less than a total revolution, a social, religious, economic revolution, as well as a political revolution. And beyond that, a cultural revolution as well. A revolution, he said, in sentiments, manners, and moral opinions. This, again, I remind you, was in November 1790, well before the momentous events that followed the abolition of the monarchy and the establishment of the republic, the execution of the king and queen, the declaration of war against much of Europe and against England as well, the confiscation of the property of dissidents and emigres, the imprisonment, expulsion, and assassination of more moderate and not so moderate revolutionaries, and finally the establishment of the reign of terror. Three years before Robespierre came to power, Burke took the measure of his man and his regime. Justifying perf perfidy and murder for public benefit, he wrote, public benefit would soon become the pretext and perfidy and murder the end until rapacity, malice, revenge, and fear more dreadful than revenge could satiate their insatiable appetites. I must tell you, by the way, that the term reign of terror is not a uh, term invented by uh, opponents of the revolution or by later historians. It, it was a contemporary term. It was the official term that was designated as such by the so-called constitution of the terror. This was the revolution Burke described, or rather predicted, in his reflections on the revolution in France. An extraordinary feat of political imagination. Burke's critics have never forgiven him for that premature, so to speak, account of the revolution, for recognizing the seeds of the terror so early and so dramatically. Nor can they forgive him for recognizing the philosophy and the temper of mind that had inspired the revolution and had made it so total a revolution. In this sense, the reflections were was even more provocative than it seems on the surface, for it was an indictment not only of the French Revolution, but of the French Enlightenment as well, which was even more revolutionary, aspiring to create nothing less than an age of reason. This is why so much of the reflections went, went well beyond the revolution itself, reflecting upon the nature of man, society, politics, religion, and much else. 
reflections that are as provocative and challenging today as they were then, and I may add, to conservatives as well as liberals. A distinguished professor of literature, I'm told, I was told this just the, the other day, used to open his lecture on Hamlet by telling his students, this play is full of quotations. <laughs> so I would say, the reflections is full of quotations as well, and so I must warn you, is my paper today. Not only because no paraphrase could begin to do justice to the original, but also because these quotations make for a rather different reading of the reflections, and therefore a different view of Burke than the familiar one. I shall also take the liberty of quoting from an earlier essay I wrote on Burke to highlight the contrast between these two views of Burke. That early Burke, the subject of my first published essay, appeared under the title, Edmund Burke, the Hero as Politician. The word hero obviously meant, ironically, uh, there's nothing heroic about that Burke as I presented him. Uh, as I then described him, he was a politician lacking any substance or philosophical seriousness. The characteristic words in his vocabulary, I said, were convenience, expedience, prudence, and accommodation. For philosophers, metaphysicians as he called them derisively, he had nothing but contempt, accusing him of applying to politics with disastrous consequences the abstract principles of philosophy and morality. Quote, nothing can be conceived more hard than the heart of a thoroughbred metaphysician. This is from a letter from Burke, by Burke. It comes nearer to the cold malignity of a wicked spirit than to the frailty and passion of a man. As evidence of Burke's animus toward philosophy, I cited his praise of prejudice and superstition. I had rather remain in ignorance and superstition, he wrote in another letter, than be enlightened and purified out of the first principles of law and natural justice. And then there were those, those other two twin words, prescription and presumption, which he took to be the basis of all government and authority. The prescription of ancient laws and authorities and the presumption that what exists probably should exist. Finally, there was Burke's glowing account of the beauty and innocence of Marie Antoinette and the charms of an age of chivalry, which I derided as reminiscent of the Magnolia and Old South School of Rhetoric. That was my early Burke. Almost two decades later, after several rereadings of the uh, reflections with students, and perhaps too, prompted by the Cultural Revolution of the 1960s, uh, which was reminiscent to me of that revolution of and sentiments, manners, and moral opinions that Burke had talked about. At that time, as I say, two decades later, I wrote a reprise of that early essay. The hero's politician of the first essay became, in the title of the second, The Politician as Philosopher. 
each of the items in my earlier indictment was turned on its head. What had been cause for criticism became an occasion for praise, or at least for amplification that put the, uh, that point of view in a quite different light. Today, on yet another reading of the reflections, I will go further, finding in it evidence, hence all of those quotations, not to be sure of a sustained philosophical treatise, but of reflections worthy of serious philosophical consideration. Yes, Burke had a great distaste for abstract concepts, concepts and precepts, and a high regard for prudence and expediency in the practical affairs of government. Not metaphysical abstraction, he wrote, but circumstances giving reality to every political principle its distinguishing color and discriminating effect. This is often quoted as suggesting that, that Burke made of circumstances the whole of politics, the be-all and end-all, of political activity and political theory. But what he clearly said, what he actually said, was that circumstances, that is particular situations, give shape and form to political principle. There was principle then behind those circumstances. And more than principle, there was for Burke something like a great chain of being an overarching contract that gives legitimacy not only to politics, but to all aspects of human life. In my earlier essays, I had casually dismissed as inconsistent with the pragmatic political Burke, his much quoted statement declaring the state to be, quote, a partnership in all science, a partnership in all art, a partnership in every virtue and in all perfection. In context, that statement may seem less paradoxical. The passage opens with the assertion, society is indeed a contract. A contract, Burke went on to explain, that contains many subordinate contracts, some of which, like a partnership for the trade of coffee or tea, are occasional and can be dissolved at will. But the state, Burke insisted, cannot be so dissolved because it is a partnership not only between those who are living but between those who are dead and those who are yet to be born. And beyond that, it is a partnership with nature itself, so to speak, that great, quote, that great primeval contract of eternal society, linking the lower with the higher natures, connecting the visible and the invisible world. Every sort of moral, every sort of civil, every sort of political institution, aiding the rational and natural ties that connect the human understanding and affections to the divine are necessary in order to build up that wonderful structure, man. Burke's state, one may say, like Aristotle's polis, was rooted in the very nature of man, man being a political as well as a social animal. The key words in this account, in Burke's account of this primeval contract, are 
linking and connecting. The lower and the higher natures, the visible and the invisible worlds, the rational and the natural, the human and the divine, the moral, the civil and the political, the past, the present and the future, all are linked together, all come together to create man. The dominant image I find here and throughout the reflections is that of a continuum, a relationship among seemingly contrary or disparate elements that somehow converge, making sense of what otherwise would be paradoxical or incongruous. It is just such a continuum, the linking of past, present, and future, that explains Burke's view of liberty, a liberty that is not an absolute right inherent in the individual, but is rather the product of time and circumstance. Just as property, he pointed out, has to be acquired and then secured, that is preserved and perpetuated, so do liberties have to be acquired and then secured. And both are secured by the same means as an entailed inheritance. The idea of inheritance, Burke wrote, furnishes a sure principle of conservation and a sure principle of transmission, without at all excluding a principle of improvement. We secure our government and our privileges in the same manner in which we enjoy and transmit our property and our lives. By this means, our liberty becomes a noble freedom. It has a pedigree and illustrious ancestors. The image of a continuum also clarifies what otherwise may seem perverse in Burke, his defense of superstition and prejudice. In my early essays, I had quoted derisively, as many others have, his remark, superstition is the religion of feeble minds. But that bold statement was preceded by a warning that an excess of superstition is a very great evil, and it was followed by the assertion that an intermixture of superstition and religion is desirable, else you will deprive weak minds of a resource found necessary to the strongest. Now this idea of an intermixture of superstition and religion seemed to many at the time, as it still seems to many today, demeaning to religion, and worse, demeaning to those in need of religion. Religion pour les autres, so to speak, for children or servants or others of weak mind. As if anticipating that criticism, Burke went on to say that religion is not a mere invention to keep the vulgar in obedience. On the contrary, it is a resource for the strongest as well as the weak. Indeed, religion is of the very nature of man. Man, Burke declared, is by his constitution a religious animal. To deprive man of his religion, he warned, would be to create a void that could only be filled by some uncouth, pernicious, and degrading superstition, a superstition that would not complement and support religion, but would rather subvert and degrade it. 
Here, too, Burke was being prophetic that terror was to replace Christianity with just such a syncretistic pseudo-religion, the religion of reason or the cult of the supreme being, as it was called. Cult, mind you, not religion. As religion and superstition for Burke were part of a continuum, so were reason and prejudice. Now here I must emphasize that by prejudice, Burke did not mean what we meant by it. That is, hostility against particular peoples or races. He meant rather all those conventional beliefs and popular opinions that do not mean the strict test, that do not meet the strict, strict test of reason. It is in this sense that he speaks of the church establishment, for example, the Church of England, as the first of our prejudices. We are afraid, Burke wrote, to put men to live and trade each on his own private stock of reason, because we suspect that this stock in each man is small, and that the individuals would do better to avail themselves of the general bank and capital of nations and of ages. Thoughtful men, instead of exploding prejudices, try to discover the latent wisdom which prevails in them, and think it wiser to retain the prejudice with the reason involved than to cast away the code of prejudice and to leave nothing but the naked reason. Prejudice is of ready application in the emergency. It previously engages the mind in a steady course of wisdom and virtue and does not leave the man hesitating in the moment of decision, skeptical, puzzled, and unresolved. Prejudice renders a man's virtue his habit and not a series of unconnected acts. Through just prejudice, his duty becomes a part of his nature. Excuse me. This was an audacious idea to present to enlightened men in an enlightened age. A challenge to those French philosophers who would indeed leave men with nothing but their private stock of reason, their naked reason. It was all the more audacious because Burke's continuum of reason and prejudice, prejudice, you remember, with the reason involved, with the wisdom involved in it, the latent wisdom in it, that continuum had the effect of creating something like a continuum, a commonality of human beings. It was the common feelings, he said, the natural feelings of men, the wisdom of unlettered men. It was these that permitted Burke to speak so confidently of the true moral equality of mankind. And it is why he could also invoke so confidently and so frequently the two words that are a refrain throughout the reflections, wisdom and virtue. Prudence, he said, is the first of all virtues. Prejudice engages the mind in a steady course of wisdom and virtue. Our ancestors provide a standard of virtue and wisdom. The church establishment is a prejudice not destitute of reason, but involving in it profound and extensive wisdom. And more provocatively, there is no qualification for government 
but virtue and wisdom, actual or presumptive. Finally, there is the most controversial, offensive, some people think, uh, the most uh, controversial part of the reflections, the paean to Marie Antoinette and the idea of chivalry she symbolized, which occasioned Bold's, Burke's boldest reflections about the relation of culture to politics. The ideas and pleasing illusions of chivalry, honor, reverence, sentiments, manners, were the product, he said, of the moral imagination, an imagination necessary to cover the defects of our naked, shivering nature. Because these ideas and illusions were shared by everyone to one degree or another, they had the effect, he, he insisted, not only of elevating everyone as individuals, but also of uniting everyone in a common spirit, thus contributing to the moral equality of mankind. And that, <clears throat> that moral equality, in turn, promoted something like a social equality and even a measure of political equality. It was this idea of chivalry, Burke said, which, without confounding ranks, had produced a noble equality and handed it down through all the gradations of social life. It was this which mitigated kings into companions and raised private men to be fellows with kings, obliged sovereigns to submit to the soft collar of social esteem and gave a dominating vanquisher of laws to be subdued by manners. And it was this age of chivalry, as much as the old regime itself, that was a casualty of the revolution. If the old manners and morals, and yes, illusions, were dissipated, Burke warned, if power was stripped of its own honor and the honor of those who are to obey it, there would be no redress against tyranny. Kings will be tyrants from policy when subjects are rebels from principle. Now, even a sympathetic reader of the reflections may dismiss these passages, as I did in my early essay, as a fanciful flight of rhetoric, reminiscent of the Magnolia and Old South School. Indeed, one might dismiss much of the reflections, as I once did, as a mere rhetoric, using that word in its uh, rather familiar pejorative sense as the obfuscation or the prettifying of reality. It was because Burke was such a supreme rhetorician, I then said, that he managed to appeal to so many people of such different persuasions, to liberals like Macaulay, who pronounced him the greatest man since Milton, or socialists like Harold Lasky, who said he was England's greatest political thinker. And, of course, the conservatives like Disraeli, who spoke of his divine effusions. I could have added scores of others, like Woodrow Wilson, who was pleased to call himself Burke's disciple. Today, what impresses me about Burke's rhetoric in the non-pejorative sense is how much of it, so far from trying to be ingratiating, was deliberately harsh and provocative. The defense of prejudice and superstition, 
of prescription and presumption, of chivalry and pleasing illusions. These are hardly words intended to endear him to his enlightened readers, for whom they were then and still are red red flags. He might have used more agreeable, more palatable terms, belief, tradition, convention, opinion. Instead, he deliberately chose to shock his readers, to oblige them to confront the issues more boldly by expressing them more starkly to confront not only the French Revolution, but the cultural revolution that he believed to be even more subversive than the political revolution. More subversive indeed for England as well as France, which is why so much of the reflections, especially the first part of it, a very large part of it, is a vigorous critique of those Englishmen who were reinterpreting their own revolution in the spirit of the French as if their revolution had given them the right to select, in effect to elect, the king and dispose of him at will. On the contrary, Burke insisted, that glorious revolution, the English Revolution, as he called it, by the way, on the very first page of the Reflections, was designed to secure this dynastic succession by restoring legitimate government after the illegitimate usurpations of James II, thus preserving those ancient indisputable laws and liberties, this is quotation, and that ancient constitution of government, which are the only security for law and liberty. The French, Burke argued, could have reformed their government in the same reformist manner, but chose instead the fatal path of revolution of total revolution. It is this Burke, the author of the Reflections, who is often pilloried as reactionary, quite wrongly, I obviously believe. But no one could attach that label to the Burke who, as a Whig, not a Tory, sided with Parliament and and party against the King and his ministers. Nor did it apply to the Burke who was a friend and disciple of Adam Smith, who is reputed to have said, that a Smith is reputed to have said, that Burke was, quote, the only man who, without communication, thought on these topics, that is a free market, free economy, exactly as he, Smith, did. Nor did it apply to the Burke who defended John Wilkes, the radical member of Parliament, who was expelled from the House of Commons for libeling the king nor to the Burke who conducted a long campaign against Warren Hastings and the East India Company for abusing their charter and exploiting the people of India, nor to the Burke who joined William Wilberforce in the campaign to abolish the slave trade, nor most notably to the Burke who was an eloquent champion of America before and during the American Revolution. There was a time not so long ago, make that a long time ago in my childhood, (laughs) when American school children memorized and recited parts of Burke's speech on conciliation with the colonies, which had been delivered in March 1775. The whole of it, by the way, occupies over 70 pages in his collected works. 
And this, by the way, is only one of several speeches that he made on America. Today, that speech is sometimes interpreted by conservatives as well as liberals as an equivocal defense of America, an argument for conciliation with the colonies, not the independence of the colonies, for a policy of wise and salutary neglect intended to preserve the British Empire and only incidentally to relieve the grievances of the colonists, and certainly not an argument for anything like those self-evident truths and inalienable rights asserted in the Declaration of Independence. This interpretation of the speech presents us with a familiar Burke, the practical, canny politician. Practical and canny, I must say, because he was, after all, addressing the British Parliament, so it was very much, uh, it would serve his purpose very well to uh, try to elicit their support by suggesting that that is what is involved in the speech of conciliation, the preservation of the British Empire. What Americans read at the time, however, and what generations of school children proudly recited were the stern tributes to the Americans, descendants of Englishmen, Burke called them, who treasured not abstract liberty to be sure, but quote, liberty according to English ideas and on English principles. Indeed, the Americans, Burke said, had a more fierce spirit of liberty than the English because that spirit was nurtured by their religion, a form of Protestantism that was not only favorable to liberty but built upon it. All Protestantism, Burke observed, was a sort of dissent but the religion prevalent in America was the most Protestant form of Protestantism, the very dissidence of dissent, hence the most enamored of liberty. It is interesting, by the way, to find Burke at various times, under various circumstances, he would say, defending the Catholic establishment in France, the Anglican establishment in England, and the disestablished dissenting churches in America. It is odd, I find it odd, that although Burke's speeches on America, and this was, as I say, only one of several, were well known in America, his name did not appear in one of the most important documents that came out of the American Revolution, the Federalist Papers. Nor did Burke, so far as I know, ever mention the Federalist Papers. Certainly not in the Reflections, although they were then available in England. And it is odd, too, that in the reflections, he made much of the century-old English Revolution, but never mentioned the more recent American Revolution. Yet reading the two documents together, the reflections in the Federalist Papers, one cannot help but be impressed by the Burkean spirit in the Federalist an approach to politics that was prudent and judicious, a devotion to liberty not as an abstract or absolute ideal, but as a product of carefully contrived and balanced policies, a non-utopian view of human nature that took into account the passions and interests as well as the ideas and ideals of the governed and governors alike. And with it all, a moral purpose and seriousness 
that transcended policy and expediency. It might have been Burke in the Federalist Papers observing that, quote, a man must be far gone in utopian speculations to forget that men are ambitious, vindictive, and rapacious. Or, again in the Federalist, reflecting upon, quote, the veneration which time bestows on everything without which perhaps the wisest and freest governments would not possess the requisite stability. Or remarking that the reason of man, like man himself, is timid and cautious when left alone and acquires firmness and confidence in proportion to the number with which it is associated. <laughs> Hamilton added to that and also in accord with ancient opinion as well. Or that the most rational government will not find it a superfluous advantage to have the prejudices of the community on his side. Or that experience is the most is the best oracle of wisdom. Most telling and most Burkean was Alexander Hamilton's advice in the last of the papers, I should esteem it the extreme of improvements to prolong the precarious state of our national affairs and to expose the Union to the jeopardy of successive experiments in the chimerical pursuit of a perfect plan I never expect to see a perfect work from imperfect man. And the obverse is true. If Burke could have penned those words in the Federalist Papers, Hamilton or Madison could surely have written that memorable passage toward the end of the Reflections, a pa passage that I think could well serve as the epigraph to the Federalist Papers. To make a government, Burke wrote, requires no great prudence. Settle the seat of power, teach obedience, and the work is done. To give freedom <coughs> excuse me, is still more easy. It is not necessary to guide. It only requires to let go the rein. But to form a free government, that is to temper together those opposite elements of liberty and restraint in one consistent work requires much thought, deep reflection, a sagacious, powerful, and combining mind. A sagacious, powerful, and combining mind. Burke might have been describing the authors of the Federalist Papers who collectively had just such a mind. Excuse me. <clears throat> the genius of the Federalist Papers was to devise a constitution for the new republic which made the United States the most enduring and most successful republic in modernity. The genius of the Reflections was to provide a philosophical critique for that other revolution, so different from the American, which produced another republic this one ill-conceived and ill-fated. You chose to act, Burke told the French, as if you had never been molded into civil society and had everything to begin anew. The Americans never made that mistake.
I'd like to conclude with another personal reminiscence. Some years ago, a young woman came up to me after class to apologize for having missed an earlier session because she said it was a Jewish holiday. I must confess, a minor Jewish holiday, which I had forgotten. She took the opportunity to tell me how much she valued the course and particularly how personally moved she was by the sessions on Burke's Reflections. Because it gave her, she said, a new understanding and appreciation of Judaism, of her Judaism, which was a rigorous form of orthodoxy. She had had to, uh, by the way, to get a special dispensation from her rabbi to attend my course in a secular university. What impressed her, she said, was Burke's defense not only of religion in general, but of a religion, her religion, founded on traditions and authorities, rites and rituals, which did not always have an obvious basis in reason, and which others might denigrate as obsolete and superstitious. My student could surely have found a vindication of her faith in Maimonides or other Jewish sages, but Burke gave her a less parochial, more universal rationale. Where Burke challenged an enlightenment that, in the name of reason, threatened to undermine the dogmas and institutions of Christianity, she saw the rationalist, secular ideology of her own age threatening the faith and the very existence of her people. No religion is as tradition-bound and history-centered as Judaism, and Orthodox Judaism is all the more so. Of the 613 commandments prescribed for devout Jews, some are moral principles binding on all civilized human beings. But others are unique to Judaism. They are what distinguishes it from all other faiths and all other peoples. To Christians and even non-observant Jews or non-Orthodox Jews, some of these commandments seem arbitrary and irrational, relics of ancient customs and superstitions. For the Orthodox Jew, they carry the weight of law and morality because they have the mandate of authority the authority of revered, although not divinely ordained, rabbis, as well as the sanction of tradition, the pedigree, as Burke said, of our illustrious ancestors. This is what spoke to my students so directly and powerfully. I can think of no greater tribute to Burke than that of this young woman, and I like to think that Burke would have appreciated it as well. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Bradley Lectures podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. The Bradley Lectures were given for more than a quarter century at AEI thanks to the generous sponsorship of the Lyons and Harry Bradley Foundation. AEI Senior Fellow Carlin Bowman and I hope you enjoy our revival of these lectures. If you do, please show your support by giving us a like and a comment and subscribing to our channel. And stay tuned for new episodes every other Monday as we bring the wisdom of the recent past to the most pressing issues of the present. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time on the Bradley Lectures Podcast.